Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26 through 40. This is the Word of God. What is the outcome then, brothers? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a translation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must translate. But if there is no translator, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent, and let, the, and let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and that all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. But if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it arrived to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone remains ignorant about this, he is ignored by God. Therefore, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes today to see the truth of your Word, open our ears to hear the voice of God in the words that you have inspired through the prophets, Lord, and through the apostles. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage today that if there be anything in our lives that that does not align with the truth of your word, that we would have the courage to change our lives and fall into submission to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So we've been through this the last few chapters, and the Apostle Paul has just painstakingly uh, spent chapters 12, chapter 13, and 14 making his case for what we so often refer to as spiritual gifts. And I told you that the word gifts isn't even in the uh, original text, and so it is something to note there that we call it spiritual gifts because these are in fact things that God has given the church, and so it's okay to call them gifts. But I think even uh, beyond that, he refers to them as spirituals, or in other words, concerning spirituality or spiritual things Uh, which just describes for us, each and every one of you, walking in the Spirit, like living in the power of the Holy Spirit. But specifically, this rebuke over the last few chapters has been about 
how the church is to conduct itself when we all get together, like in this context right here. Specifically, uh, when the first century church gathered, when God's people met together, and this was before they had the completed Word of God. This is really, really important to understand that you and I have uh, uh, the Word of God in our hands. They did not have that. The books hadn't even been completely written yet, okay? And this was also while the foundation was still being laid by the apostles and the prophets. Uh, what did it look like to act, to move, and to work in the power of the Holy Spirit? All right? And that's what we're talking about in all the spiritual things. Now, that statement, that question, uh, rather, is a loaded one because understanding that context... The, the context of this passage of Scripture is key to having the correct view theologically. And I want to give you a couple examples of that. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you believe that you are supposed to do all of the same miracles that Jesus did, that incorrect theology will lead you in your life to major disappointment. Because I know a lot of people who actually believe that not one of them I've ever seen walk on water or raise someone from the dead. Do you understand? Okay, it means something. If you say you believe something, then it should also be the reality in the life that you're living. Amen? All right. So the Gospels are what we call historic, historical narrative. Okay? So it's history and it's telling the story uh, of descriptions of the ministry of Jesus, God who came here in the flesh... And it is not, so it's descriptive. It describes, it is not prescriptive, meaning prescribing us just as a doctor would prescribe you medicine. He would, he would give you medicine and he would tell you how to take it, right? In, a, in, a, in the right way. Well, so this is not descriptive. This is prescriptive. And I mean, it's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Sorry, all the, all the crazy noises got my, my wires crossed there. Um, so remember, uh, the Gospels are historical narrative and they are descriptive about Christ's ministry and all the miracles he did. Similar, similarly, the book of Acts is historical narrative and it's descriptive of the ministry of those that he gave his authority to, the apostles, and their miraculous acts. And that's why it's called Acts. It's the acts of the apostles. Many of the mighty miracles that were being done by their hands in what we call the first 100 years of the church is the apostolic age, that foundational period of the birth of the church. And if you read Acts and believe that we're supposed to do the same things that the apostles did, again, you know, think about it. Uh, uh, tongues of fire resting over your head, prayers of uh, prayer hankies where they cut, off Paul, cut up Paul's clothes and sent him out and people were healed just by having a piece of his, his torn tunic and uh, you have spirit teleportation, like where all of a sudden they're at one place and just baptize someone, all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're caught by the spirit to some other completely different geographical location. Like, we don't teleport. Anybody in here teleported? None of us do. This was a different period of time in church history, and it's describing the things that were going on during this period of church history. Okay, But if you believe that that was normative and that's supposed to be happening today and that's your baseline of theology, uh, that those same acts are supposed to be normal, as I said, every day in our lives, you will fall short of that goal. 
I've, I've been a believer my entire life, never met anybody, even in those churches who would say that it's supposed to be normative. I've never seen anybody with the cloven tongue of fire over their head. I've never seen anybody uh, teleport, okay? So, again, if you have the wrong understanding of the context of the passages of Scripture, you're going to have erroneous theology. And that's why there's so much confusion and so much separation in the body of Christ today is because we're not approaching Scripture with what we call a proper hermeneutic, where we understand the context, and from that context, we draw the actual meaning out of Scripture. And then it's not, well, Bill says it's this thing, and Kevin says it's this, and then there's all this... uh, these arguments going on, and then we have 27,000 different denominations because if we would all just read the Bible in its context, we would be so much closer in our belief system. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to flip back and forth a little bit today between 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. It's interesting that, Billy, you uh, you chose to read there because we didn't touch base before that. But Ephesians chapter 2 uh, verses 19 through 22, and I want to make this point once again. I've made it in the past, but, you know, um, repetition is the mother of all learning, they say, and I just think that repeating something and and kind of driving it home will help you understand. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through, uh, I, I have 20 here, so maybe not through 22, but it says, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All right, so let's stop there. We see this picture of a house being built, and the cornerstone is laid. And back then, they would, they would uh, hew this stone out of the rock perfectly, perfectly square, and they would set it where it needs to be, perfectly square, And then all the other foundation stones were set with that cornerstone, making up the entire foundation of the building or the house. So he's saying this house is being built. You're part of the building of this house, okay? But he says that the apostles, the cornerstone is laid, then the foundation stones. And uh, just to point out Chad over there, you build houses, right? How many times do you lay a foundation in a house? I'm sorry? How many times do you pour a foundation? Yeah, pretty simple. Okay, that's important to understand. You pour a foundation one time. So Christ is the cornerstone. Everything we do as a church is because of him and for him. And again, he did things that no one else did. But then the apostles and the prophets formed the foundation, which is laid one time and one time only. You don't build, frame in a house, and then pour concrete all over it again and try to pour another foundation. That's not how it works. So the, the um, first century of the church, before the Bible was complete, those apostles, those prophets were taking part in laying the foundation of the church, and that's what we call that first 100 years, the apostolic age, where things were being done that you saw, again, teleportation, spir- uh, spiritual hankies, and all that kind of stuff that we don't ever see again in Scripture, okay? So everything the apostles did was in the power and authority that Jesus himself gave him or gave them and also to the New Testament prophets for the purpose of launching the church, the New Testament church, okay? So that's what we're looking at in all of this. It's so important to understand when we read Scripture. 
The apostles and prophets were the leaders of the church during that period of time. And as they died, there were fewer and fewer prophets and apostles, okay? They were dying off over the years. Most of them, many of them, of the original 12, were all of them except for one were actually martyred. Um, But then you've got the prophets, and, and slowly they die off. But as they were dying off, there were books of the Bible being written by these same apostles and then circulated amongst the churches. So you began to see there was a transfer of authority from the apostles and the prophets to the new church leadership. And we see, we know that there were evangelists. We know that there were teachers. Interestingly, when you look at 1 Corinthians, you don't see any mention of pastors, okay? So this was something, but you see a lot of prophets and apostles, Um But then later we see pastors and elders and deacons come on the scene. The leadership structure eventually transferred to those men completely when God's Word had finally been uh, delivered. Jude says when the Word of God was delivered once for all to the saints, right? Um, And and that's what we see. After the apostles and prophets uh, of the first century church, when they passed away, we see this new form of kind of church leadership with the pastors and the elders and the deacons and so forth. And we are all built upon the foundation, pardon me, of the apostles and the prophets. Let's look at verse 20 again. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So this is a spiritual endeavor within the hearts and the lives of his people. It's him empowering his people to be the church, and we are being built upon the foundation that the apostles and the prophets uh, laid down in that first century church age. If, now turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And look at the order that this goes in. We see the foundation and then we see what we have already discussed. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and then some as pastors and teachers. You see, there's kind of this the same order there as if the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. And then you see, uh, as things go along, we have got pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service... And then here we see this picture of the building up again, like the building of a house, the building up of the body of Christ. So it's all about building up, which, which is also the word edify, to build up, okay? Now, understanding this transfer of authority within the church is essential to grasping what was taking place in Corinth, when we go back to Corinth, uh, and how it differs from our church today. So when Paul was writing them this letter, he was dealing with specific issues that they were facing during that first 100 years of the birth of the church, during the apostolic age. And there were things going on there that we don't even see happening now. And I'll I'll try to explain why. It's because some of the spiritual gifts were once again these supernatural signs. And the purpose of the supernatural signs was to validate God's man, that this is in fact one of God's chosen men, and to also validate his message. So this is God saying, 
this is my word and the supernatural miracles that accompany these things are for a sign to prove to you that this is in fact me doing this and this is in fact me saying this and this is in fact my man, my chosen man, okay? So as the Bible was fully given and the men and women in the church could hold on to the Bible, they had access to the letters, they could study it, they could memorize it, they knew it, it was validated already as God's divine word because these were the apostles who wrote the words of Scripture, do you see? And so because it had already been validated by God's chosen men, all right, there was no longer a need beyond a certain point for supernatural validation anymore. Uh, It was redundant, it was repetitive, and there was no need for it uh, because God's Word had been delivered. The authority in the church transferred to the authority of Scripture and to those... those, uh, those men in the church who had been endowed with certain spiritual gifts to be pastors and teachers and evangelists and elders and so on and so forth. All right, if you're understanding so far, give me a nod or say amen. Let me know you're still with me this morning. I know the turkey from last night probably all worn off. So, all right, let's keep going here. So again, pastors, elders, teachers, deacons, evangelists, they use the Word of God from that point on as the standard of truth in the household of God, as do we. That's our standard now. So we no longer need normal, everyday, supernatural occurrences to believe what God has already said. Now, I want to point this out one more time, and again, I'm being a little repetitive, but for those of you guys who maybe weren't here when I taught this, in Luke 16, you can turn there if you want, but I can also describe it to you, but you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And and the Lazarus dies, and the rich man dies, and they both wind up in the afterlife. And this is the afterlife prior to Christ dying. So, and this is this would be a deep theological discussion. But you've got this uh, this place described as Hades or the grave, and on one side is the bosom of Abraham, where all the Old Testament saints who were righteous in in looking ahead and putting their faith in Christ were in this place called the bosom of Abraham. And then the the Bible says there's a great gulf fixed in between. And then below there was the place of torment. Okay. What we would, we would call hell, but it's actually not hell. It's just a place of torment. Well, you see in the story that Lazarus goes to be with Abraham in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man who lived his life uh, wickedly goes, of course, to the place of torment. And in the process, the rich man begins to cry out to Abraham, please let Lazarus, just let Lazarus go back, like raised from the dead, and go back and talk to my brothers and warn them and tell them that this is real and warn them to to change their lives so they won't wind up here with me, okay? And you see what, what Abraham says to this rich man just blows some people's theology out of the water. The people who believe that if only people could see or experience a miracle, they would believe. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Miracles are not enough for someone to believe. And and here's what he says. Uh, He says, Abraham said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. He's pointing them to Scripture. Scripture, Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets. He's pointing them to the Old Testament. So he's saying miracles are not enough for someone to believe. If, they, if your brothers won't believe what God has already written and placed in front of them and said, thus saith the Lord, 
then they're not going to believe it if Lazarus raises from the dead and goes back to tell them, hey, this place is real. So what does he do? He points to the written word of God to say, this is truth. This is your warning. This is thus saith the Lord. And now we have the New Testament. So we put our faith and trust in the New Testament. Uh, We don't believe and have faith just because the miraculous uh, may occur. Okay, As a matter of fact, in in Scripture, we're actually warned that there's going to come a time where false miracles will come about, right? We see Jesus say that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into glory. Jesus says that they will say, Lord, did we not perform mighty miracles and cast out demons in your name? Well, there are going to be false miracles, folks. So miracles are not are not what proves God's existence. God's Word is what proves God's existence. And the process in choosing certain men to to speak the Word of God, to write the Word of God, and then we have to have faith in Him and put our faith in the Word of God. And here in Corinth, they're still operating in the supernatural on a regular basis, okay? So it's during this transitional period. Under that foundational system of the apostles and the prophets, however that all worked in that day, and we don't have the details, we just know uh, y'all have been to church your whole life. I've even been to uh, a lot of charismatic churches, and still what they claim to be going on and point to these passages, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And I've never, I've never walked away from one of them where I said, as Paul mentions, where the stranger comes in, and by the time he leaves, he's saying, Surely this was the work of God. Like, it's undeniable. I've never been in a, in a situation where that's actually happened in, a, in the context of going and visiting a charismatic church. But believe, believe me when I say, too, I've been in a lot of really, really dead spiritual Baptist churches and other churches that, that simply don't believe God's Word either. So we have to believe God's Word, and we have to believe everything in God's Word. And if we'll do that, if we'll have faith in Him, it will truly transform our lives. So again, we don't have all of the details of exactly what was going on, but what we do have, listen, what we do have is the overall priority of the passage and the point that Paul is driving home. So we may not be in exactly the same context, okay? But but the priority of, of his overall point is, Uh, loving others selflessly and loving others sacrificially in the context of the church and building everyone up in the church. So the circumstances doesn't really matter. And knowing that context is what we're dealing with, a first century form of gathering under the authority of the prophets and the apostles. And we understand that while we do not operate in the same exact manner that they did in a normative supernatural validation sort of process on a regular basis, the overall priority is the same when we gather today. The overall priority is the exact same when we gather today. It is for everyone to understand. It is for everyone to hear the Word of God in a way that it can be taught and understood, and that edifies everybody in the place. No one's left behind. Amen? You can turn back over to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. So I get to preaching too hard and I get to spitting, y'all. And not. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brothers? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a translation. Here's your priority. Let all things, all things be done for edification. 
Let all things be done for edification. So he's saying, my brothers and sisters, let's boil this all down. When you come together as the body of Christ for the purpose of worship, here are your clear priorities. This needs to be in the hearts of mine and minds of every single believer in the room. Regardless of the importance of each, you have a song to share, a supernatural new revelation. If someone speaks in a tongue and someone has the interpretation of that tongue, the priority is that all be done for the purpose of edifying and building up every single person in the room. And then he turns his attention once again to the gift of tongues. So we're getting in the, in the um, kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what was going on in the context of that particular church. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in their turn, and one must translate. Makes it very clear. In order to edify everyone, there can be one, two, or at the most three people speaking in a tongue, and each, excuse me, each must take their turn. There must be an interpreter. And I ask the question, what if there's no interpreter? Well, Paul answers that in the right Uh, In the very next verse, verse 28, if there's no translator, no interpreter, then he must keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. So in other words, if there's no interpreter, keep it to yourself. Pray in silence, okay? And this, this is all very simple to understand, is it not? Like we're talking like kindergarten level here. He's, he's lining it out for us line by line, precept upon precept. Uh, Now Paul's going to pivot to these prophets within the local church those who prophesy, and they prophesy again in a couple different ways. First, the prophet who teaches what God has already said, okay? So all of the things, perhaps a teaching from the Old Testament, perhaps a reading and teaching from one of the new apostolic letters that, you know, either Paul or Peter or James had written. And so someone gets up and reads that letter and begins to teach that or expound on that. So those were two of the God has already said this, and we need to pay attention to this type. And then um, there was this other form where there was new revelation, where God would speak to a prophet, and this was new revelation for that particular church in that day, okay? And everyone would understand, all would be edified, uh, but also we see here that it has to be theologically correct, it had to be theologically correct. They couldn't just say stuff, thus saith the Lord, and it be wrong. They were always held to account. Uh, verse 29 says, Let two or three people or prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. It means that, again, the process you see here, one or, or two or three at the most may speak, but then the other prophets there, their job is to discern what was being said, to hold it up against Previous prophecies or previous, thus saith the Lord, and it can't contradict at all. Same thing we do today when we practice biblical discernment. If anybody says anything, we hold it up next to Scripture, and if it doesn't align, we toss it aside. That doesn't align with what God's Word says. Okay? It had to be correct. And then he writes further instruction for the prophet, verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who's sitting down, the first one must keep silent. So, Uh, Paul's being very specific, very orderly. If one prophet is teaching an already established text, so there's one guy standing up and he's talking about maybe the book of Isaiah or he's maybe he's reading one of the letters that that uh, that Peter wrote. Okay, 
Well, if all of a sudden someone over here on, on his left has a new revelation, Paul says he needs to, I don't know, tug on his tunic and say, hey, uh, brother, I've got a, uh, I've got a new revelation. And, and Paul said, then the guy speaking what had come before needs to sit down while the, the guy with the new revelation stood up and gave that fresh revelation from God. You see the order? So it's supposed to all be done in order. Okay. Um, verse 31. He says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. So they're discerning. Again, what you say today is going to be held up in contrast with what the prophets in the past said. And also, you know, there's some discussion as to whether or not he's saying that the prophet needs to always be in control. I think that's valid. I think that's a kind of a no-duh situation where if you're standing in front of people, you kind of need to be in control of yourself. But obviously, we see, we've seen last week in some of the video footage that we watched that, that pastors aren't always in full control. And, and so, look, if one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control and you can't control yourself in some way because of something else going on, then I would say that's a red flag. But bottom line is the, the, the prophets are spirit are subject to the spirits of the prophets. They are going to be held in alignment with what's already been spoken. And if it's not correct, then that needs to be called out. So in the case of speaking in, in tongues, we saw two or three at the most in their turn, followed by an interpreter so that all can understand, okay? And they know that this is in fact correct. In the case of the prophet speaking, same process. Two or three at the most speak in turn, followed by discernment from the other prophets to validate if it is in fact genuine and correct. Does everybody get that? Say amen. All right, you got it. All right. So do you get the feeling in this passage that Paul does not want anyone to leave the assembly unsure of if what took place was actually from God? God wants us to understand and know. I would say this is one of the most impactful revelations in my life over the last five or six years, is that I believe that God wants me to know the truth. He wants me to know. He didn't, it's not this, this gauntlet that we are amazed that we have to find our way through. We just simply have to do what he tells us, study, understanding that there are cultural ba uh, barriers understanding their language barriers, so we've got to put the time and effort into study, but God will reveal His truth to you, and God wants us to understand anew. No, I know you probably have all been there where you've met someone, let's say in junior high or high school or maybe even college, you know, and you understand the absolute torture of contemplating whether or not that cute girl or that cute guy actually likes you. Like you felt like maybe there was something there, you know, maybe some sparks flew, but you weren't sure. And you're living in the torture of the moment, just wondering, do they actually like me? Or how many of you guys have been there, right? You all have. Yeah, you all have. Don't lie. We're in church. Don't lie. Okay. Um, that, the not knowing in that moment is maddening, and it brings out all kinds of insecurities. Like, am I good looking enough? Am I too chubby? Am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? And you start like going down the list, like what is it about me that they may not like, right? There's, it, it brings, the not knowing brings up all kinds of insecurities. Not having validation, not knowing their standards and the truth is up in the air. 
and I need some sort of validation. I just want to know if they just, you know, I need something more than a like on my, my latest Instagram post, whatever the case may be with all you youngsters today, okay? Even more so, though, think about it when considering spiritual things, eternal things, and how we're supposed to live our lives to honor Christ. Wondering, God, is that you? Like we're talking about God. We're talking about eternal things. And we're supposed to know. We're not supposed to have insecurity in that. Is there any real way of knowing? And that brings out all sorts of insecurities and doubts in the heart and the mind of a believer. uh, Because, folks, it's not supposed to be guesswork. We're not supposed to wonder if it's God or not. He really wants us to see the truth and know the truth and have it in us and walk by that truth. God wants you to know. God wants you to have faith in Him. He wants you to have faith in His Word. An anchor to hold to. The world is crazy. Don't you want some truth to hold on to? With no insecurity about whether or not what He said can be trusted. His Word can be trusted. It can be trusted. If you're in Christ and your feet are firmly planted in His Word, you honor Him by holding to the standard of His Word. You give Him glory when your life is anchored to His truth. It glorifies Him. I know the Christian culture has trained us in in our modern day society to want more. They have told us that if we want to be spiritually elite, if we want to be spiritually powerful and have everything that God has to offer us, then every day we have to really want or really seek or be engaged in these otherworldly supernatural experiences that are supposed to blow our socks off. Just really, you know, but the problem is it's this perpetual seeking this breakthrough, they call it, or seeking this new spiritual high, and they plant this in your brain, making you think that there's something missing, that God's Word is not enough, that fellowship and love of your brothers and sisters in the context of the church is not enough, and they're pushing this idea. And honestly, the whole idea revolves around me, me, me. It, it revolves around how I feel and what I think about the whole thing. What, what kind of power can I get? What kind of power can I display? What are the gifts that I could attain for myself? And we turn true spirituality into a me-centered endeavor. When, when you know, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God who's given us, literally authored the word, of God through these apostles and given it to us on a silver platter, essentially, by preserving his word. He authored it for our own personal growth in life and godliness. The true power of the Spirit is manifested in reality. It's genuine, tangible truths that you can see in your everyday life, and it's not, you know, floating off the ground or doing all these things that fire tunnels and all these crazy things that they're telling you you need to be a part of. Again, real tangible ways that make a difference in our everyday lives and the lives of everyone around us. The Word of Christ should richly dwell in us and the power of the Spirit will be manifested through us. That's how it works. But the key is that intrinsically it is not for us. We don't do it for my benefit to grab all the gifts we can get. That's not what it's for. That's that's what the Corinthians were doing. 
And, and it was a jealous sort of wanting to get the gifts. You want to do it instead in the right way. You want the gifts, but the reason you want them is so that you can pour them out on others, so that you can edify others and build others up, okay? And we will get in, 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 the, in turn in doing so, we get this incredible fulfillment out of pouring ourselves out we get this spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment that you can't find any other way in this world. You can grab all you can get, but you will never be fulfilled the way you'll be fulfilled when you pour yourselves out for God and you pour yourselves out for God's people. That's just a fact. When you do that, when you pour yourselves out, He fills you up with Himself. I would rather have Him and fill myself up with Him than try to fill myself up with my own pride and my own sense of self-worth. Amen? So our lives, the power of the Spirit in our lives may not be the shock and awe that, that we've been told we ought to have by so many people in its presentation, but the fruits of the Spirit in our lives are powerful and they're transformative. The roots go deep and they shake us and form us at our very core. They make us better husbands, better moms, better uh, employees, all of that in submitting to the Word of God. We offer a desperate, dying world faith and hope and love, eternal things that they are all desperately seeking, and they're trying to find it in so many other ways, like the old silly country song, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? That's what they're doing. They're trying to fill themselves up with the rot and, and, and the disease of the world. When God's word is right before us, his truth is right before us, eternity is right before them, and it's up to us, the body of Christ, to show them what it really means. So when we gather, this is no place for fabrication. This is no place for pretending or making stuff up or chief counterfeits. The house of God is no place for insecurities and doubts in the truth. We must be faithful to God and believe in His Word. Trust Him. Look at verse 33a. This is why. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If you're walking with the Lord, you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. It transcends everything that you can possibly fathom. You don't know why you have it, you just do. You trust God, and you can say to the world, do your worst, and whatever you do to me, I've accepted whatever you do to me, whatever happens to me, and whatever I have to walk through, whatever I have to endure, even if my life itself is poured out and I give the ultimate sacrifice, I am eternally secure in Christ's hands. I have nothing to fear, nothing to fear, and that is a powerful form of peace, amen? He's a God that gives you peace. And if you're in turmoil about the truth, you seek something more than what God's already given when God gave you His Word and He said, this is enough. This is all you need for life and, and godliness. But if, you're, if you can't trust God's Word fully, then you're going to be perpetually frustrated because you have yet to surrender completely and just open yourself up to that peace that God's sovereignty brings of just trusting Him that He is good, that He's just, 
that he's always righteous and he, and he does want what's best for you, but sometimes the want, wanting what's best for you doesn't really play out in, in the temporal world. The fact that you're going to be with him for eternity is what matters the most. Trust his word. Trust his word and you will have peace and not confusion. Amen? I've heard uh, that last week, Several people got up and walked out of John MacArthur's church because of a passage similar to the one I'm about to cover, so good luck. Um, But here's the problem. We too often hear what's not being said, all right? You hear what's not being said, and we automatically jump to the worst possible conclusion instead of hearing grace, which is what we ought to be, we ought to train ourselves to do, is anytime someone says something to us, it's really our responsibility as people growing in Christ to say, you know, that they may have meant that as an insult, but I think I'll take that as a compliment. Like you, you hear grace, right? And then you speak life. Don't ever say something to someone else when you haven't considered how it's going to impact them. You can say the right thing in the wrong way and it can be hurtful, okay? So we need to always consider those things. Um, So let's not do that with the Word of God this morning, okay? Let's look at verse 33b and 34 through 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are subject themselves, just as the law also says. But if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, there was something going on in this church, obviously, that at times still goes on today. There was a feminist movement. We've covered all of this in the past sermon as uh, 1 Corinthians covered it earlier on. But the, the bottom line is there was disruption taking place in that particular local church, in, in the body of Christ. And there were, uh, there were women standing up and contending with the prophets and the apostles, and they were, they were trying to cause disturbances in the church, okay? Um, but this gives us a baseline of what to believe in God's created order, okay? Um, If you look at Ephesians, turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. We're going to poke around in chapters 5 and 6. Ephesians 5 and 6, but let's start in verse 5, and we're going to look at verse 22. We're going to see this passage echoed here. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands, but listen what it says right here, as to the Lord, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is the subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Remember that phrase, as to the Lord. Ladies, you you can hear that this morning and consider it demeaning and you can be offended by it and you can miss the actual loving truth that's bound up within what he's saying here, okay? God has a created order. And when God creates something a certain way, the best thing that you can do is walk in the truth of that because there's built-in protection and love and honor in all of that. This is in no way demeaning women at all. As a matter of fact, to look at God's created purpose and consider that the God who made the crowning jewel of all creation, I want you to consider this for a moment. 
Every other creature was created out of mud. Women, you were not. You were the crowning jewel of God's whole creation when He made woman. He took you out of man. You have a place of beauty and prominence more so than anything else in creation. But your purpose is a beautiful purpose in this earth. Now you can listen to modern day culture and you can demean your own purpose by thinking what God told Eve in the garden would happen is part of the curse. Your desire will be for your husband or dominion over your husband, but God said you shall not have it. If you walk in the truth of God's created order, you will live in in a peace and security that you wouldn't know otherwise. And it doesn't mean, men, that you get to step on your wives and make her call you Lord and, and, you know, beat your chest and be Mr. Mr. Macho Masculine Man, okay? Because that's not what we're talking about either. That is an abuse of God's created order as well. You are supposed to sacrifice for your wife. Pour yourselves out for your wife. And so it goes both ways. But let's look at what God's word here says, says here. Um, says um, the created order, we're going to look at a, another passage of scripture in just a moment, but the created order extends to the body of Christ when they gather for worship. And this does not de- deny that women are not gifted. A lot of women are gifted way more than me. A lot of gift, uh, women are gifted more than a lot of men. Okay, So it's not about who has the most talent, and it's certainly not about who has greater value. It has nothing to do with that. That is not in question whatsoever. Men and women have equal value in the eyes of God. They just simply have different jobs to do in God's created order. But God, honoring God isn't about the specifics of you or I, like I said, who has what talent and and all of that. That's not what it's all about. We all must submit to someone as unto the Lord. That's just a fact of life. In the body of Christ, we all must submit to someone as unto the Lord. And the context of our submission for each and every one of us is this. This is, this is important. Ladies, when you think about it, men, when you think about sacrifice and giving yourself up, and, and when you think about your, your boss at work that is mean to you, right? All that stuff. We are not submitting to the human agent standing in front of us. We are actually submitting to Jesus Christ. It's not about that person. It's not about how they treat you. And it's not pretending either. It's not like saying, I'm just going to pretend that that's Jesus. No, it is Jesus that you're submitting to. You are submitting to Christ himself. In chapter 5, verse 25, husbands must love their wives and be subject in the same way that Christ, who was God, came here as a man and was subject and became a servant even unto being crucified. The people that he created, the very people that he created in the earth he created, in the whole universe that he had dominion over, and he subjected himself to those wicked men and they murdered him on a cross. In chapter 6, verse 1, children are to be subject to their parents, obey and honor them. This is a commandment. This is God's created order. There's a built-in protection so that it may be well with you and you may live long in the land. That's not a promise. That's a, that's a principle. That doesn't mean if always that if your kids obey that nothing bad's ever going to happen to them. It's a, you need to know the difference in God's Word between a principle and a promise, okay? 
But in verse 4, fathers are subject to Christ in treating their children justly so that they will not provoke their children to anger. Do not treat your children in such a way that they are going to dislike you and hate you. If you're, if you're correcting them in the biblical manner and you're doing so in a loving way and, and you're not hurting them and you're not um, you know, demeaning them in any way, then, then you will correct them in a healthy manner. But do not provoke your children to anger. If you want to uh, get into what our culture would consider the most offensive example, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Look at that one. Slaves, be subject to those who are your masters. Imagine that. You see, it's not about who's in charge. It's not about value or worth. The worth is squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And we submit ourselves to Him and Him alone. So even slaves are are supposed to subject themselves to their masters with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart. Look what it says, as to Christ. You're doing it to Christ. So even in the most egregious circumstances, the ones we would find most offensive, we submit ourselves to that person because we're submitting ourselves in reality to Jesus Christ. You see, it doesn't matter who the middle man or middle woman is when we humble ourselves and we submit to God's order and His plan, we are glorifying Christ. That's what you need to know. So ladies, you get to subject yourselves and submit to your husbands, and in so doing, it is an act of worship to Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. And I promise you, it's reciprocal. Like, the more you love Him and, and, and serve Him and, you know, and act within that created order, the more He will lay His life down for you and serve you and love you. It's, it's a beautiful gift that God has given in marriage. So it just so happens in this case to be in order for there to be peace in God's house. We're all to adhere to the way that he's established for us to conduct ourselves. If you look in Ephesians 5:21, Paul says, "Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ." Same thing. You and I are subject to one another. And when we speak to one another and when and how we treat one another, we're doing so as unto Christ himself. So how much we love Him should reflect in how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. There's a built-in peace, as I said, and protection in the body of Christ when we do what we do in the manner that that God has dictated for us to do it. It's a built-in peace and protection. In this case, women have that protection under the spiritual authority that God has given her husband. Unmarried women, you know, daughters, ask your fathers... Ask another spiritual leader that is qualified. But in this case, in the church in Corinth, outbursts, disruptive questions at the wrong time, inappropriate ways are never to be done publicly in the assembly because it causes disorder, confusion, and a lack of peace in the household of God. And God is not the author of confusion. He's a God of peace. Amen. Verse 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has it arrived to you only? Now this... (laughs) is also an essential truth that we all have to understand because Paul asks this question, did you write Scripture? Are you the author of Scripture? Or was it delivered on your doorstep so that you can tell everybody what it means? Is that how it happened? Of course not. And he's asking that. He's posing this question. Of course it's not. God is the author of His Word. It originated from Him. These 66 books in the Bible are 
God's word. They are thus saith the Lord and should be taken as such. So that very clearly means that each and every one of us are to obey God's word. We are to be subject to the authority of God's word. The next statement I believe is like the mic drop. He leaves no question as to what it means to understand the meaning of true spirituality. So if you want to know what it means to be spiritual, if you want to know what it really means to be spiritual, here's what he says. If you want to proclaim God's words, if you want to claim to be super spiritual, verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, very simple, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. In other words, this letter I'm writing, Paul says, is in fact divine revelation from God to be put on the same level as the inspired written word of the law and the prophets in the past. He knew he was writing scripture when he wrote it. He was aware of it. The words I, Paul, am writing are the commandments of God. And he follows that up in verse 38 by saying, and if anyone remains ignorant about this, he is ignored by God. If you are not willing to look at this and say, this is the word of God and trust God and trust the power of God that's displayed in him giving us his word and him preserving his word through all the ages, that's an incredible miracle. All these uh, silly people saying that, somehow the Roman Catholic Church got copies of the Bible and changed it all up and then sent it back out again. Come on, that's ridiculous. It's not possible in any way, shape, or form. Not even close. The nature in which God did it made it impossible for that to happen. They would have had to go to every house and every hut and every village and every town all over because these letters were circulated everywhere and they were copied over and over and over again. And there was no way that any entity could have gotten all those copies and then somehow burn them or whatever and then change the text to be what they wanted them to be. It's absolutely impossible. You can trust the miraculous power of God in the preservation of His Word. This is God's Word. Amen? It's truly a dangerous thing not to understand this or to be ignorant of the importance of the power of God's Word in our lives. It's even more dangerous to believe that in this next passage here that you have the right to overrule it or alter it, or disobey it, or dis diminish it, or ignore the timeless truths that are found in the Word of God. There are actual cultural things that change. There are even ways that God has interacted differently with men across the ages, but the timeless truths of Scripture do not change. They don't change. They're the same uh, all the way through the pages of Scripture, and that's why we can read about what was going on in Corinth with the apostles and prophets the tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy and new revelation. We can read all about that and not be confused that it's not going on in our churches today because we understand the context. We see the letters being received, written by the Apostle Paul, taking as the new inspired commandments of God. And in all of that, we don't have to be confused because we know that God had a plan and He was simply rolling out His plan. And now we're just part of the process, being built up as the house of God. All those things, although those things are not taking place in our churches today, right? Nobody in here believes that somebody's out there writing new scripture, right? That there's somebody writing a new Bible or adding to the Bible. Think Revelation makes that very clear that uh, if anybody adds to or takes away this book, let them take part in the plagues that are written in them. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff. I think that's pretty much an exclamation point on the end that this is the canon of scripture and it's done, right? Right? Well, 
Um, nobody's out there. Prophets are not proclaiming new revelatory scripture. Nothing is on, on the level of new scripture. And the purpose for tongues and interpretation of tongues in that context, it's passed away. In addition, we no longer need prophets and apostles. But the timeless truth in all of this is part of our worship. Every time we get together, we have, as Peter called it, the word of prophecy made more sure. The word of God is better than that mountaintop transfiguration experience that I've talked about so many times. That's such a powerful witness is that he said, I was there, I saw all of that take place. It was a supernatural thing that happened. I heard the voice of God. Two dead prophets, Moses and Elijah, were standing before me and still God gave us the more sure word of prophecy. The Bible is even better than that mountaintop experience he's saying. Pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, all taught of and well-versed in their knowledge of the Word of God, that timeless truth endures even today. We proclaim the truth with love as our highest eternal priority, made clear in chapter 13, and the edification of everyone in the church made clear in chapter 14, and he makes it crystal clear in his final remarks of this chapter to that first century church that even regardless of the supernatural occurrences taking place at that time, there's still a process, there's still order that needs to happen. Verse 39, Therefore, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. If we are going to love one another, church, if we're going to love one another, and everyone in this body is to be edified, and, and everyone is going to grow in their love for their Lord and the love for one another, and their love and sacrifice to others, then things in the household of God must be done properly and in order because that brings glory to Him, and it's genuine, it's real. It's not fabrication, it's not counterfeit, it's not fake. And we get to be that plan A in the world. We get to share the gospel, and we get to be a part of one another's lives. It's a blessing, amen? Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome. Thank you.